0: Hello everyone, I'm your host Chloe, and I'd like to thank you for joining me for today's episode of Clear Skies. Today we'll be discussing one of the most widely recognized constellations in the night sky, Orion. We'll discuss the general shape and idea of this constellation, the stars and nebulas that compose it, and then we'll go through the mythology and history surrounding this constellation in various cultures. Again, thank you for joining me and I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's put on our ghillie suits and get after it. Orion, or the Great Hunter, is highly visible from December through March. This constellation is very close to the celestial equator, which is our Earth's equator projected out into space, and therefore visible in practically every part of the world, the exception being within a few degrees of the South Pole. As it is visible during what is the winter here in North America, it is referred to as a winter constellation. This constellation is the first of six in what is called the Winter Circle an asterism which dominates the winter sky. One star in Orion, which we will discuss, is also a part of a second asterism referred to as the winter's triangle. As mentioned in the prior episode, an asterism is just a pattern of stars, typically a shape that our brain finds easy to create out of bright stars. They can be as simple as squares and circles, or more complex like rubber duckies and teapots. Now, you can use Orion to easily find the rest of the major winter constellations, and this can be an easy way to impress people at parties. Over the next five episodes, we will cover the rest of the winter circle, and hopefully by the end, you'll be able to show off this trick the next time you're out at night with your friends. Orion is easily found due to the straight line of three stars, which are referred to as Orion's belt. However, the constellation is much more than just these three stars. It's on the larger side, the 26th largest out of the 88 constellations, and is technically a polygon with 26 sides. Maps of the constellation, as well as photographs of all the nebulas, stars, and other fun things we talk about today, will be available on the website at clearskieswithchloe.com, and it's also linked in the show notes. So here's the general idea of the shape of Orion. Once you've found the line of three stars forming his belt, There is an asterism of an hourglass with the belt in the middle. The corners of this hourglass form Orion's shoulders and knees. Above the shoulder stars, he has a head, which consists of three stars, only one of which is visible with the naked eye. Below the leftmost belt star, there are two bright stars and one bright nebula, composing Orion's sword scabbard. To the upper left, you can also find the rough shape of an arm reaching above Orion's head and a sword arching overhead. On the upper right, you will see an arch of stars forming his shield. This shield is directly between Orion's body and the head of Taurus, or the Great Bull. According to several myths, these two are locked in eternal battle, and we will be fully discussing Taurus in the next episode. Now part of what makes Orion such an interesting constellation is the variety of stars and objects contained within this one section of sky. The two brightest or most notable stars have very different compositions and properties. The brightest star of Orion, Rigel, acts as Orion's left knee. Its name is even derived from an Arabic term meaning the left leg of the giant. In the Northern Hemisphere, it is the right bottom star, in the Southern Hemisphere, the top left. At its brightest, it is the sixth brightest star in the sky overall. Now, though Rigel is technically the brightest star in the constellation, its brightness does vary. Therefore, it is at times outshone by another, which we'll discuss in a few moments. This star is very blue, and therefore a very hot star, much hotter than our own sun. Rigel is a blue-white supergiant, which is a fairly rare type of star. They are especially luminous, and they tend to stand out. Rigel is about 860 light-years away, so we're seeing light that left the star 860 years ago, or in the year 1181 A.D., Now, compared to our own Sun, its radius is about 70 times larger, and it has about 21 times the mass. While we can only see the one star, Rigel is actually a part of a trinary system, with three stars having gravitational effect on each other. It's possible there's a fourth star involved as well, but that's still being investigated. This star is relatively young, only about 8 million years old. However, these hot blue stars burn through their fuel pretty quickly. Rigel has already exhausted all of the hydrogen in its core and will eventually expand into a red supergiant. As previously mentioned, we will be covering the specifics of the stellar life cycle in detail in a future episode, but for now, let's suffice to say that these large stars go through a pretty spectacular process. We're not certain when Rigel's life will end, but when it does, it will likely be visible from Earth. It may even be the second brightest object in the sky, outshone only by the moon. The second brightest star of Orion, Betelgeuse, is positioned as Orion's right shoulder. Within the constellation, it is diagonal from Rigel. In the northern hemisphere, it is the top left star, and in the southern hemisphere, the bottom right. Betelgeuse marks the center of the winter circle, and it's also a part of the winter triangle asterism, along with the stars Procyon and Canis Minor, and Sirius and Canis Major. In contrast to Rigel, Betelgeuse is a cool red and extremely large star, so large that it is the 8th brightest star in the night sky. Betelgeuse is what's called a red supergiant, precisely what Rigel will eventually become. The temperature of this star is about 60% that of our sun, yet it is about 100,000 times brighter. This is remarkable for a red star, as its red color tells us the star is relatively cool, and cool stars must be much, much larger than hot stars to exude the same amount of energy or to be as bright. In fact, Betelgeuse's radius is about 900 times larger than our sun's, and it has 10 to 20 times more mass. This is one of the largest stars you can see with the naked eye. To put that insane size and perspective, if you replace the sun with Betelgeuse, The star would expand past the orbits of Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, the asteroid belt, and potentially even beyond the orbit of Jupiter. This radius to mass proportion shows that the density of Betelgeuse is very low, and on average the density of the star is less than the air around us. Now, Betelgeuse is a variable star, as is Rigel, and therefore it can sometimes outshine Rigel and become the brightest star in Orion. At its brightest, Betelgeuse becomes the 6th brightest star in the sky, yet at its dimmest, it is the 20th brightest. It has one of the largest variations in brightness of the stars that we see. Now, the Aboriginal people of Australia may have noticed this variability long before us here in the West, and the stories showing that will be shared in the next episode discussing Taurus, as the bulk of the stars discussed are actually in Taurus. Betelgeuse is slightly closer to us than Rigel at 642 light-years, so the light we are seeing left Betelgeuse around 1379 AD. While cooler stars tend to evolve more slowly than hot ones, Betelgeuse's enormous mass has made it evolve more quickly. While the star is relatively young, about 10 million years old, it is evolving rapidly and losing mass as it does. It loses approximately the mass of our sun every 10,000 years, And this lost mass has, over time, formed a giant cloud of gas and dust, a nebula, surrounding the star. This nebula is about 250 times the size of the star, extending 20,000 astronomical units into space. So that means that the nebula extends 20,000 times the distance from us to the Sun. It's simply gigantic. Eventually, it's predicted that Betelgeuse will explode as a supernova. However... If the mass of the star is on the low end of the estimate, so below 15 times that of our sun, Betelgeuse will undergo a very rare end-of-life process, resulting in a neon-oxygen white dwarf. Until we know more, the fate of Betelgeuse is entirely speculation. Now, while these are the only two stars we'll discuss in depth this episode, several other stars in this constellation have interesting properties. Several, including Mintonka and Alnitak in the belt, and the head star Mesa, appear to us as single stars but in reality are binary or trinary systems with multiple stars locked into orbit with one another. As there are several types of binary systems or trinary systems I highly encourage you to look further into this if multi-star systems interest you. Within this constellation, there are several nebulas. A nebula is basically a stellar nursery. It's an area of dense gas and dust in which new stars are forming. The most famous of these is the Orion Nebula, which is visible to the naked eye if you're lucky enough to be somewhere with very little light pollution on a pretty clear night. Otherwise, it can easily be seen with a pair of binoculars or a small telescope. This nebula is famous due to its beauty, its visibility, and due to something called the trapezium. The trapezium is a set of three of these new stars which have begun forging elements and therefore have begun shining. The trapezium shines from the very middle of the nebula, almost appearing like the heart of the nebula. This cloud of gas and dust um, is often described as wispy, like gossamer strands or cobwebs. It appears like a translucent gray through a telescope. Images taken with different sections of the light spectrum will show it with tones of blue and orange. Even just in grayscale, I've seen it many, many times, and it has never ceased to be incredibly beautiful. It also kind of looks like a bat or a Batman symbol, which is pretty cool. Though this is the most well-known, it is not the only nebula within this constellation. A hair's breadth away from the Orion Nebula, there is the Messier 43 Nebula, or Denmarin's Nebula, often referred to as a miniature Orion Nebula, due to its small size and single shining star. This nebula is also fairly dim and can be found with a small telescope during the early winter months. These are both part of the Orion Molecular Cloud Complex, which includes several other distinct nebulae. These include the well-known Horsehead Nebula and the Flame Nebula. Again, we have photos of each of these objects on the blog at clearskieswithchloe.com. It's also worth noting that each October, there is a meteor shower coming from this section of sky. The parent body of the shower is the famous Halley's Comet, and it produces about 20 meteors per hour. 20 per hour isn't too shabby, so I definitely recommend trying to catch that this year. As Orion is such a large, recognizable, and beautiful constellation, you can probably imagine that it has captured the imaginations of people for hundreds of years in many parts of the world. You have probably recognized a few of the star names from various pop culture franchises as well. Bellatrix, which marks Orion's left shoulder, means female warrior and was used along with many other star names we'll mention in the Harry Potter franchise. You may also recognize Betelgeuse, as it is the origin name for the lead character in the quirky 80s film Beetlejuice. Rigel is also popular in fiction, being used in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and several times on Star Trek as the names of various planets. One other odd historical reference was in the military during both World War I and World War II. The 27th Infantry Division of the Army National Guard, use a depiction of the constellation Orion on their shoulder insignia as a pun on their commanding officer's name, Major General John Orion, O apostrophe R-Y-A-N. So that's pretty cute. Now throughout history, many civilizations have created their own mythos surrounding Orion or worked this pattern of stars into their existing legends. Here are just a few of the mythologies surrounding this formation of stars. In this section, I'll be attempting to pronounce some unfamiliar words and phrases, so please forgive any mistakes I make, or even better, email me or DM me a correction so that I can avoid the same mistake in future episodes. The earliest of stories concerning Orion was recorded by the Sumerians, who ruled Mesopotamia. In case you're like me and need a refresher on your ancient geography, this region lay between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and is modern-day Iraq, Turkey, Kuwait, and Syria. If you're really like me, and that still isn't that helpful, we're looking at the section of Western Asia that connects both to Eastern Europe and the eastern edge of Africa, bordering the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea. So now that we kind of know where we're at, let's talk about their story. Their mythology is related to the oldest surviving written story, Gilgamesh. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the historic king of Mesopotamia is depicted as a demigod who goes through many trials and adventures. One of these trials is a battle with the bull of heaven, Gugulana, unleashed upon him by a spurned wannabe lover. This struggle was immortalized in the heavens with the constellation Uruana, the light of heaven, which shows a warrior fighting a bull, which we now refer to as the constellations Orion and Taurus. Gilgamesh, or Orion, is seen with an axe in his right hand, bow in his left, and a sword hanging from his belt. In one version of this myth, Gilgamesh's companion, Enkidu, tears the bull in half and throws him into the heavens. Gilgamesh is then represented by Orion, or sometimes by the sun, whose rising on the equinox vanishes Taurus. This version of the myth also accounts for why we only see the front half of Taurus the bull. Now, the city-states of Mesopotamia were eventually conquered and passed over to the Babylonians. With this change came new people, new ideas, and new mythology. Babylonian astronomers completed a comprehensive catalog of the visible stars and constellations, and Gilgamesh became the true shepherd of Anu, referring to a Sumerian attendant deity who served as a messenger to Anu, the ruler of the sky and the supreme ruler of heaven. Funny enough, this messenger was also an attendant to the wannabe lover of Gilgamesh, the one that unleashed upon him the mighty bull. This version of the constellation had a very different visual representation. It was seen as a shepherd with his left foot forward and a staff in his extended left hand. The arch of stars we see as a shield was a staff reaching from the messenger's feet to his head. This deity was traditionally symbolized as a walking bird, and so behind and below the shepherd was a rooster, with each separate constellation representing the deity in his bird and human form. Next, we're going to go just next door to the west, to ancient Egypt, where the stars were tightly entwined with the agricultural calendar. The ancient Egyptians believed that the gods descended from the three belt stars of Orion, as well as the star Sirius in neighboring constellation Canis Major. Orion was regarded as the god Sa, the father of the gods, with the belt representing a crown upon his head. The star Sirius was his wife Sopdet, a fertility goddess. These two deities were later syncretized with two you may be more familiar with, Osiris and Isis. The appearance of the star Sirius, or the god Isis, came around the summer solstice and inherited the flooding of the Nile, or the start of the agricultural year. The later appearance of the belt stars, Osiris, foretold the flooding's end around the time of the winter solstice. As Osiris was a deity in charge of death and reincarnation, it has been said that the king's chambers in the pyramids of Giza were built with this southern air shaft pointing towards Orion's belt, as the king would reunite with Osiris in the afterlife. Now going back over to the east, we have something very different and a little bit gross. From Hindu mythology, we get this very interesting story surrounding Orion and Taurus. In the original creation story, it is stated that the great creator, Prajapati, or Lord of Creatures, who later was syncretized with Brahma, developed a lust for his own daughter. Like I said, it's gross. Due to the incestuous nature of this, the other gods were appalled and called on Rudra, who you may recognize as Shiva, for help. Prajapati's daughter, evading these attentions, kept changing her form. However, Prajapati would just change himself to the male form of whatever animal she had chosen. It is when Prajapati had taken the form of an antelope that is now immortalized in the heavens. Prajapati is represented by what we know as Taurus, and Rudra or Shiva as Orion, attempting to stop Prajapati from committing these heinous acts. The daughter, in the form of a deer, is represented by what we know as Capricorn. In a variant of this story, the daughter is represented by the brightest star of Taurus, and Prajapati is Orion, with the three stars representing an arrow that pierced him. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find the story about who shot him, though it was probably Rudra or Shiva, but I'd like to give them a high five. (laughs) In a very different Indian myth, it is said that Orion was a hunter waiting in the top of a tree. He sees a beautiful deer, yet as he takes his aim, the deer pleads with him. The deer states that she has a small baby at home and would be grateful if she could see her child one more time before her death. Orion lets her go, not really expecting her to come back. He remains at the top of the tree and begins picking leaves off the tree and dropping them below to a small Shiva linga. This particular tree is a favorite of Shiva, and Shiva is pleased by this small act of worship. Surprisingly, the deer returns to die by the hunter's hand. Shiva is touched by this scene, I'm not really sure why, and she transfers both the hunter and the deer to the heavens as Orion and Taurus. Potentially the most well-known Orion myth, at least here in North America, is the one from which we got the constellation's current name. In Greek mythology, Orion's story has several variations. In all of them, he was known as a great and powerful hunter. Now, in this story, we're going to see a few familiar faces and places from last week's Greek myth. So, in the oldest version, Orion is the son of Poseidon, the god of the sea. Orion is associated with the island of Chios, where he fell in love with the king's daughter, Morope. Depending on which version you hear, Orion either fell in love with Merope and was not approved by her father, the king, or he made sexual advances after a night of drinking. Either way, the king was not happy, and he blinded Orion and removed him from the island. Orion eventually had his eyesight restored by the rays of the sun, by, like, magic, I guess, and went to Crete to join the huntress Artemis. Again, the stories vary after he gets to Crete. So some stories state that he was killed by Artemis after trying to rape her, and others state that he was killed by Artemis' brother Apollo due to jealousy. Another totally different version of this story states that once he was at Crete, he gained such a taste for hunting that he stated that he would kill every animal on Earth. Gaia, the goddess of the earth, was angered by this and sent a giant scorpion to kill Orion. After his death, apparently in this version he did not try to rape Artemis, because she and her mother asked Zeus to put their fellow hunter in the skies. Zeus complied and put both Orion and the scorpion that killed him into the heavens, which seems a little passive-aggressive, or maybe political. Maybe he was trying to keep both Gaia and Artemis happy. I don't know, but they are on opposite sides of the sky, at least. Closer to home, at least for me, here in the southern U.S., there were several myths in the Americas. The Seri people, who are indigenous to the Mexican state of Sonora, which is on the western coast adjacent to California, say the three stars of the belt each represent a different animal, a mule deer, a pronghorn antelope, and a bighorn sheep. When the great hunter in the sky shot an arrow, it hit the mule deer, which is the middle star, and missed the others. After the mule deer's blood dripped down onto Tiburon Island in the Gulf of California where they live, it remained in the sky as the red star Betelgeuse. This myth accounted for why mule deer, but not antelope or bighorn sheep, were native to the island. Other cultures had other names and myths surrounding these stars, of course. Spain refers to these stars as the Three Marys, Puerto Rico as the Three Wisemen, the Chippewa Indians referred to them as Wintermaker, as its presence heralds winter, and to the Lakota, several of our current constellations were used to represent a bison. This is actually my favorite of these. So, the belt is the spine of the bison, the greater rectangle of Orion is the ribs, the Pleiades cluster in Taurus is its head, and the star Sirius in Canis Major is the bison's tail. Regardless of what you want to call these stars, I think we can all agree that they are very beautiful and also very useful for agricultural and cultural purposes. Hopefully this episode has taught you at least one thing you didn't know about this constellation and has inspired you to look at the stars above you. Please subscribe so that every episode is automatically sent to your feed and share this podcast with anyone and everyone you know. We're all bored in quarantine and we all live under the stars. So I think it's basically relevant to everyone. Now, all of our resources, photographs, and maps are located on our blog at clearskieswithchloe.com. That's clearskieswithchloe.com, which is linked in the show notes. You can reach out to me directly on Instagram at clearskieswithchloe. I'd love to hear your thoughts, corrections, suggestions, anecdotes, anything, and everything that you would like to share with me. So again, thank you so much for all your support, and as always, wishing you clear skies ahead.